Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you so much that we are here today by your grace, Lord. We can hear from you through your word. Would you help us, Lord, to understand what it is that you're communicating to us? Help us, Lord, have ears to hear, to be sensitive to your spirit moving through your word, Lord. And I pray that this would just be an extension of our worship here this morning and it would be acceptable to you. And Father, we would worship you in spirit and in truth as you seek worshippers who will worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come now to the study of God's Word, open up your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 5. It's John chapter 5. We'll be continuing our study through the Gospel according to John. And our study today will take us from verse 1 down to verse 16. That is our portion of Scripture for this morning. And it consists of a narrative that may be familiar to us, most of us, if not all of us, because it's a narrative of a man being healed. A man who was ill for 38 years. He lay an invalid by the pool of Bethesda and Jesus comes along and heals him. And we're going to see this morning... Another piece of evidence for Jesus' deity as consistent uh, with John's purpose that these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and we may, oh, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and in believing have life in his name. So we've been saying that the Gospel of John is pieces of evidence provided for us to prove that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, God in human flesh. And this morning we're going to see his display of healing power towards a man who had been ill for 38 years. Now, may I remind you what's brought us up to this point. We've already covered the first four chapters of John, and already we've had monumental evidence for the deity of Jesus Christ. The book started with John introducing to us Jesus as the pre-existent creator of the universe, that nothing had came into being without him, with all things, all things came into being through him. And then John, as we go down chapter 1, said that this pre-existent creator, the God of the universe, has taken on human flesh and he has dwelt among us so that we can receive his grace and behold his glory. And already in John's Gospel we've seen that. We've seen evidence for that claim that John wrote. Multiple times we've seen his divine omniscience through conversations with people, through knowing people's hearts, through knowing their background, through knowing what they're thinking. We've seen his divine power at the, at the temple where he cleared out massive crowd of people. We've seen his miraculous power already to heal. The last time we were in John's Gospel, he healed a boy who was on death's door without even being near him. And not only have we seen his miracles, but we've also listened to him, that he is full of grace and truth in the way that he converses with people. We've heard him talk with the highest man in uh, Jerusalem, a teacher of the Jews, Nicodemus, and he steered that conversation into an offer of divine grace and showed Nicodemus that his works and his law-based system was absolutely worthless to him. And then following that, he conversed with the woman at the well where again he steered the conversation into an offer of grace. And on top of that, we've also had the only prophet in Israel at the time, John the Baptist, testify of him twice that he is indeed 
from heaven that he is the Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So already in the first four chapters of John, we are supplied with more than enough evidence to prove the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And there is now no excuse for us not to believe in him and receive eternal life. Now I just want us to bank in the back of our minds that as we come into chapter 5, Jesus' ministry is now public. It's a very public ministry. Word has got around and people are aware of who he is. We saw that as he went into Galilee. The whole city came out to welcome him. Now, we would think that with all these great miracles and signs taking place in Israel, that the people of Jesus' day would be over the moon, that their Messiah has arrived, he's here, he's healing people, he's teaching us the ways of the kingdom, and people's lives are being transformed. And granted, among some of the people, there was that attitude But in spite of all the great things Jesus is doing and the evidence that is stacked up to prove his identity, there are ones who are against him, namely the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They have set themselves up against Jesus. Ever since he attacked the temple in chapter 2, they have been opposed to him. And they are working hard to keep the people under their control, under their false system of Judaism, their legalistic system. And they're completely opposed to Jesus and his ministry. And they're out to convince the people that Jesus is not the Messiah, but he is a blasphemer and he's a false prophet. So though we'd expect there to be this rising tide of acceptance throughout the land of Israel, rejoicing that Messiah is here, there was mainly a rising tide of hostility and rejection towards Jesus and his ministry because the ones against him are the ones who have the power over the people. Now, up until this point, this has all been working behind the scenes. We haven't actually seen much of this in John's Gospel, but it's through today's passage that Jesus is intentionally going to bring this hidden hostility to light through healing a man on the Sabbath day. And he does that intentionally. And so we're going to see this hostility become clear to us at the end of our narrative because if we just read verse 16, we see that after this, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So we're going to see this tide of hostility start to arise through Jesus' ministry. So this miracle narrative of Jesus healing a man today is not only evidence for the deity of Christ, but it also marks for us a shift in the gospel according to John because the hidden hatred of the Jews, which by the way when he says that term Jews, when John uses that term, he's not meaning all the Jews as a nation, he's he's using that term as a um, way to identify his enemies, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Jews are the enemies of Christ. And we're going to see that hatred for Jesus arise out of this. And this animosity, this hostility will only grow as we continue through John's Gospel and it's going to follow us all the way to the end of his ministry when they're finally able to do what they've always wanted to do to him, and that's kill him. But up until now, John's gospel has at least been kept quiet about that issue, but just bank that in your mind. But let's begin now by reading our narrative, and then we'll make our way through it. We start verse 1 of chapter 5. It reads, After these things there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. 
Whoever then first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was a Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So we're going to break our narrative this morning into three parts because it's surrounded by three people who are involved, or two people, one is a group. The first person is Jesus, the second would be the Jews, and then the third being the man who was healed. And through this narrative, we're going to focus on the, those three people or groups, and we're going to see, namely, or firstly, the compassionate heart of Jesus, then the callous heart of the Jews, and then the unconcerned heart of the man as we make our way through this. So the compassionate heart of Jesus, the callous hearts of the Jews, and then lastly, the unconcerned heart of the man. So that's our structure for today. And then I want to just touch on one point of application as we draw our narrative to a close. But let's begin verse 1. Verse 1 begins by telling us that after these things there was a feast of the Jews. So after Jesus has been in Galilee ministering there, there is a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now we don't know exactly what this feast is. The scripture doesn't tell us. All we know is that from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 16, there were three major feasts that were held in Jerusalem that all men were required to attend. Those three being the Passover, Pentecost, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's most likely that Jesus is travelling to Jerusalem for one of these three feasts. We don't know specifically though. We know that he was ministering in Galilee, and now it's that time of the year to go to Jerusalem for one of these feasts. But we don't know exactly which one for sure. But that's okay because it's not entirely relevant to the story. What is relevant to the story is that in Jerusalem there is a pool near the sheep gate, which in Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porticos or five porches. Now the fact that the, this pool is near the sheep gate immediately puts us close to the temple. The Sheep Gate was a gate in Jerusalem, or in the Jerusalem Wall, that was used to bring the sheep who were being sacrificed at the temple through into the city. So there's a pool in Jerusalem which is near the Sheep Gate, which is near the temple, and it's got five porches, five shaded areas. And around this pool in the shaded areas, the porticos, lay a multitude of sick people. Now, it's not just a few sick people that are laying there. Our text says that there is a multitude of those who are sick, who are blind, who are lame, and who are withered, paralyzed, etc. And they lay there because it was believed that this pool had healing power. Now, if you've got with you a Bible that's an NIV or an ESV or an NLT or a New NASB, one of the more contemporary versions, 
You've probably got lost when we were reading through this because your Bible doesn't include the last half of verse 3 and the entire verse 4. It doesn't have that. Now, if you have a King James Version or a New King James Version, then you would be fine because you have verse 3 and also verse 4. Now, this is because in the earliest, most reliable manuscripts that we've found, this part about the angel coming down and stirring up the water isn't there. It, it appears that this has been added later on by a scribe. The original just reads this as, In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, it's got nothing, nothing saying about the angel who had, been, who had come down. So John never actually penned down this part about the angel coming down to stir the waters. It's most likely that throughout the years when, this, when John's text was being copied down, that a scribe added this in because of verse 7. Verse 7 um, arises some interest because the man talks about the stirring of the water. But if an angel actually did come down, we, we don't know that for sure. It's most probable that this was just a common belief among the day, perhaps an ancient superstition that this pool had healing powers. It could easily have been that this pool was spring-fed and at certain points it bubbled and people just thought that it was a spiritual um, phenomena happening. We don't know. Um, it's definitely not outside the realm of possibility that an angel came down and stirred the waters, but we can't take that as scripture because John did not write that. A scribe had added that later on. And I think it's just important to note here that that's not a problem for us who believe the Bible. As Christians, we believe that the Bible is the inherent word of God, but we don't believe that any of the copies of the original are inherent. We believe that the original text that John, Peter, and Paul wrote down were the very words of God, and now from that, people have copied it and translated it. And it still carries, obviously, that same power because it's God's word, but when things come along... Like this, where we see in ancient manuscripts that there is something that's been added in there, that's not a problem um, for us. Some textual critics pull this up as a problem, but it is not. It's only because we've discovered earlier copies that we realise that verse 4 is not in there, but when obviously the King James and the New King James had been Translate. Well, the King James Version had been translated. They went off the earliest copies that they had. Now, all that just to say that the angel coming down is not outside the realm of possibility. It could have been real, but um, most likely just a widely held belief that the people had in that day. Now, a man had been laying there at this pool, had been ill, and he had been ill for 38 years. Verse 5 tells us that he is there. And verse 6 says that when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Now, I just want to pause for a moment on that verse because I love that. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, that's again Christ's omniscience. He didn't have to go ask around for this guy's name. He didn't have to go ask how long he'd been there or what's wrong with him. He already knew. He already knew the man. The man had no idea who Jesus was, but Jesus knew him. And it's in this that we see our first 
part that I want to, our first point that I want to focus in on, the compassionate heart of Jesus. Because Jesus already knows this man, and he goes up to him, and it says that Jesus went up to him and said to the man, Do you wish to get well? Now that may seem like a bit of a strange question to us. I mean, the man's been there for almost 40 years, he's ill. He's an invalid, and you'd think it would be clear that he wants to be made well because he's at the pool where people go to receive a healing. So it seems a bit strange that Jesus would ask him, do you wish to get well? But I think Jesus went to this man and asked him this question for two reasons. Number one, this question immediately cut to the man's problem, his issue. He's ill for 38 years and he's been wanting to be well and it hasn't happened. He's bought into the superstition that this pool can heal him, but that hasn't worked either. So Jesus, in encountering this guy, immediately goes to that. He immediately just cuts to the core issue, the man's illness. It's similar to his conversation with Nicodemus where he didn't entertain small talk. He just immediately cut to the issue of the heart and he focused on what was going on in the man's mind and heart, his need, his true need. So I think that's why Jesus goes up to him immediately just says, do you wish to become well? And I think the second reason as well is that it shows this man that somebody sees him. Somebody cares for him. For 38 years this man has been paralysed. Nobody's helped him out. Nobody's shown him compassion or mercy, but Jesus sees this man and goes to him with a question about being well. It shows him that there is somebody there who sees his situation. And if nobody else cares about him, there is one who cares, and that's Jesus who cares. So the man replies to him, verse 7, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. What a sad state this man is in. For four decades he's been like this, <clears throat> paralysed, unable to get himself to the pool. His legs don't work. And for four decades nobody has helped him. Nobody's extended to him mercy or compassion saying, you know, you've been here longer than me. Why don't you just go into the pool? Here, let me help you get into the pool. Nobody's done that. Nobody's shown him that. Nobody's helped him. He hasn't received any compassion from anybody in the years that he's been laying there. But now for the first time in 38 years, here comes a man to help him and show him love and mercy and compassion. And this man is Jesus. That's because Jesus is compassionate and God is a compassionate God. He cares. He saw the man. He talked to the man and now verse 8, he's about to meet the man's need and heal the man. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well, the verse says. What an amazing display of the compassion of Christ to see this man that nobody else bothered with. To heal a man who was <clears throat> essentially in the depths of despair over his condition, it's almost like he has lost hope. I mean, he's been there for four decades. Jesus helps him and heals him completely and immediately. And as much as this is a display of compassion on Christ's behalf, it's also a display of of his deity, that he has the power over sickness and diseases, power that 
only God has. You know, I think it's important that we understand this, that throughout Jesus' life on earth, he verified that he was God in human flesh through numerous ways, as we've already seen through John's Gospel. But the primary way God revealed himself as Jesus to the world is by his power to heal. The majority of the miracles that Jesus did were healing miracles. And I just want to touch on that a bit because God could have easily displayed his deity in other ways, which he did, but he mainly, majority, decided to display it through healing people. We read in Matthew 9.35, that Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. In Matthew 14, 14, it says that when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and he healed their sick. Matthew 15 says that large crowds were coming to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and they laid them down at his feet, and Jesus healed them. When John the Baptist sent his disciples or his messengers to go question Jesus if he's the Messiah, Jesus responds in Luke 7, 22, he says to them, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard, that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. So Jesus primarily displayed his deity by healing sick people. And I believe that Jesus did these miracles not just to verify that he's God, but to to demonstrate the compassionate, loving heart of God. I believe that Jesus wanted these people to know that God wasn't like the God that the Pharisees had taught them he was like. He wasn't hardened to their needs. He wasn't like their religious leaders who just dumped burdens on them and stood far off, unwilling to help. No, I believe that God was showing them that he's a God of compassion, that he sees this situation, that he's caring and he's sympathetic and he's kind and he's merciful and he cares about the needs of his people and he's willing to come to them where they hurt and restore them. Like this man by the pool, Jesus showed him that God isn't like all the other people who ignored him who just simply walked over him and passed him by and didn't offer Help! who barged in front of him to get into the pool. No, Jesus saw him, he knew him, and he had compassion on him, and he healed him. That's a display of the compassionate heart of God for people. Now, verse 9 says that immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. And can I just add on that, that Jesus' miracles were instantaneous when he healed. There was no prolonged healing process of slowly getting better. They were healed immediately. And we saw that last time with the nobleman's son at the end of chapter 4, that when he was arriving home, he asked his servants, what time was my son healed? And they said, it's at the seventh hour And he knew that that was the hour that Jesus had told him, go, your son lives. So it's the same with this man. Immediately he's healed by the power of Christ. His legs for the first time in 38 years have been fully restored and he can walk. They're working. They have strength in them. They have life in them. 
all because of God's compassionate display of healing power to this man. This man didn't even know who Jesus was. It was Jesus who sought him out and healed him. Now, as soon as Jesus heals this man, this man obeys Jesus and he picks up his pallet, he begins to walk. Now, it's not long until it's not long after this until this man's confronted. And he's confronted by the religious authorities. He's confronted by the callous heart of the Jews. And that's because at the end of verse 9, that lets us in on a, verse, on, a, on a key detail that immediately this man became well, picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Jesus had deliberately healed this man on the Sabbath. And that's a problem for the religious leaders. It's a problem that he's carrying his mat in their eyes. Now we know that the Lord gave the Sabbath day to Israel and it was to be a holy day, a day like no other. You're not to work that day, but rest, and it's be set apart for the Lord, which was a wonderful blessing for the people. But the Pharisees and the religious leaders had so twisted the meaning and function of the Sabbath that instead of it being the most blessed day of the week, it had become the most burdensome day of the week for them, the hardest day. And all throughout Jesus' ministry on earth, he ran into this problem with them and confronted them with this issue time and time and time again, trying to explain to them that it was the Sabbath that was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. But they wouldn't have it. They corrupted the Sabbath day and they had categorized work and they had got it down to the very very letter really the basics of work what you can and cannot do what's classified as work and not work on the sabbath day and one of these things was carrying your mat now someone may say at this point that the pharisees have a point because jeremiah 17 does mention that you're not allowed to carry anything on the sabbath but if we read jeremiah 17 in context uh, verse 21 to verse 24, we see that that carrying loads on the Sabbath was about commerce. It's about trading. It's about bringing loads into Jerusalem and out of Jerusalem. It says, Jeremiah 17, 21, you don't have to turn there, but you can jot it down. It says, Thus says the Lord, Take heed for yourselves and do not carry any load on the Sabbath day or bring anything in through the gates of Jerusalem. You shall not bring a load out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy, as I commanded your forefathers. And then verse 24 says, But if you come, if you, if it will come about and you listen to me, declares the Lord, to not bring a load in through the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but to keep the Sabbath day holy, well then there will be blessing. So he's not. The Lord isn't talking about carrying a person's mat. He's talking about carrying loads and trading into Jerusalem. But just coming back to the callous heart of the Pharisees, the Jews see this man. They would have known this man, that he had been laying there for 38 years, and instead of running up to him and being amazed, saying, wow, you've been laying there for almost four decades, paralyzed, and now you're healed. That's incredible. How did this happen? I'm so happy for you. We're so excited. They instead go up to the man and they say to him, don't you know it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet? On the Sabbath? Really? That's a callous heart. These people are the people who claim to be the shepherds of Israel, yet they couldn't care less about this man or his condition or the fact that he had just been healed. All they care about are their silly legalistic rules. And they fail to realize that this man carrying his mat 
isn't work for this man. To carry your mat after 38 years of lying on it isn't work. That's freedom for this man. To lay back on it, now that would be work for him. That would be a burden, and that's exactly what legalism does. It turns freedom into a burden. And so this man's intimidated. He doesn't know what to do. All he knows is that he's been healed, and the man who healed him told him to pick up his pallet and walk. So being intimidated at this point because the big religious leaders aren't happy with him breaking the Sabbath, what, what can he do? All he does is tell them, verse 11... He answered them and said, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. He doesn't even know who healed him. But he knows now that the Religious leaders aren't happy with him and they're after whoever it is who healed him and told him to break the Sabbath. Which brings us to verse 14, back to the compassionate heart of Jesus. Verse 14 says that afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you've become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. That's fascinating what Jesus says to this man after this miracle. Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore. That tells me that this man's condition was probably a result of sin in his life. Now we have to understand that sickness, majority of the time, isn't a result of sin. It's not. We know from John 9, the healing of the blind man, you know, whose who sin was it the, this man or his parents? Is that why he's blind? And Jesus says, no, neither. This man's blind simply for the glory of God. And we know also from Job's uh, afflictions, that that wasn't due to sin. It was actually because Job was righteous that he had so much trouble. But it's also important to understand that sometimes sickness can be a result of sin. It's like in 1 Corinthians 11. What does Paul tell them? Some of you are sick. Some of you are even asleep. You're weak because of the way You've been treating the Lord's table. Now, we're not to stand in judgment over someone who has a cold. We're called to have the compassionate heart of Christ. But, at least for this man's case, his 38-year illness could possibly have been directly related to sin in his life. So Jesus finds him again in the temple and tells him, Behold, you've become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. And what's the worst thing that can happen to him if he doesn't repent and stop sinning? Well, it's simple. It's judgment. Hell. Hell is worse than four decades of sickness. And it's in this deliberate conversation Jesus is having with the man that we again see his compassionate heart because this is compassion. He's warning him. He cares for this man. And like we noted as we've been saw miracles that the physical miracle wasn't an end in itself. But Jesus is after something far greater than just the physical healing. He wants this man's soul to be healed. He's after the spiritual well-being of this man's soul. And that's a far greater reach of compassion that Jesus is concerned for this man's eternal destination as well as his physical needs on earth.
But Jesus reaches into this man's life through a miracle healing and touches this man's heart so that he may be saved from hell and judgment, not just the ailment that had plagued him for 38 years. Which leads us to the final component of this sermon, and this is the unconcerned heart of this man, which I think we'll find to be the most surprising of this all. After Jesus heals this man, he then seeked him out and he warns him of greater judgment to come in hopes that he had come to faith and he'd be saved. And this man repays Jesus by siding with the Pharisees and ratting Jesus out. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. That's fascinating. This man earlier had encountered confrontation with the religious leaders and he had been so intimidated by them, so concerned with himself thinking that he's broken the Sabbath that he was only trying to get himself off the hook and get back into their good books. And it's here we see his is concerned that he's actually he's unconcerned about who Jesus is. He's only wanting to clear his name with the Jews. Now he knows that they're after Jesus. He knows they're not happy with Jesus for breaking the Sabbath and healing on their precious Sabbath, yet he still decides to declare loyalty to the Jews rather than Jesus. When Jesus came to him in the temple, if he was concerned about Jesus, if he cared for him, he would have said something along the lines of, Jesus, thank you, and thank you for telling me that. By the way, the religious leaders have confronted me. They're, they're after you. What should I do? And when you told me to pick up my pallet and walk, was I really breaking the Sabbath or... What am I to do, Jesus? I'm confused. But he doesn't. He doesn't say anything like that. He's not concerned about that. He's not concerned about becoming a disciple. He's not concerned about listening to Jesus. He's not concerned about Jesus in this situation. He's only concerned about himself and his reputation with the Jews. So he goes and he seeks out the religious leaders to tell them, I know who it was who healed me. I know who it was who told me to pick up my pallet. It was Jesus. And then verse 16, we read that, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. It's amazing, isn't it? Shocking that this miracle story is actually a tragic miracle story. And I think this has got to be one of the saddest acts of ingratitude recorded in the Gospels, that this man was healed and he was warned and instead of believing, he rejects. But in saying that, it's, this isn't uncommon throughout our Lord's life and ministry. One particular event that comes to mind is Luke 17, when our Lord healed ten lepers. How many came back? One. Where were the other nine? We don't hear from the other nine. And it's sad that most of the people Jesus healed actually turned around to deny him. 
You think about the multitudes upon multitudes of crowds and crowds of people that surrounded Jesus, so much that they were stepping on each other and he was healing the sick. All throughout his life and ministry, there's so many miracles that John writes at the end of his gospel, John 21, 25, that there were so many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that were written. There were so many miracles, so many other encounters that we don't have. The four gospels are just a drop in the bucket of what our Lord did in his life and ministry. And if all was recorded, John says that the world would literally be filled with books. Yet we think about that. <coughs> but then we see in Acts 1, how many people are waiting for the Holy Spirit? 120. That's only a yeah, handful of people of all the people that Jesus ministered to. And we also know from 1 Corinthians 15 that he appeared to 500 at one time after his resurrection. So when we think about this number in comparison to how large Jesus' ministry was throughout the land of Israel, it's not a lot of followers. And John warned us at the beginning of this gospel in John 1.11 that he did come to his own and his own didn't receive him but as many as did receive him he gave to them the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name. It's sad, it's very sad and this story is just a testimony of that. A man lay sick, 38 years, nobody to help him. Jesus comes along, displays compassion, heals the man, and the man turns and sides with Jesus' enemies. It's just incredible. And so through this man's act, the Jews' hostility towards Jesus just ignite, and they begin to persecute him, and this persecution will now run with us all the way until we go to the cross where they finally do what they want to do to him and that's crucify him. So we'll leave our text there for today. Next time we'll pick it up in verse 17 where Jesus confronts the religious leaders and defends his deity. But before we close in prayer, I just want to touch on one point of application because all of us are like this man. We've all been shown (coughs) an immeasurable amount of compassion from Christ. We've been shown grace. Jesus has given his life so that we may live. He was completely obedient to the Father's will. He lived a sinless life and he freely gave up his life for our sins as a sacrificial payment for our sins. That's grace, immeasurably. Compassion. Now each of us are in a position like this man. What are we going to do with this compassion that Christ has shown us? We can either reject uh, because we're intimidated and we may be intimidated by the world, by others, by what people think of us, by the popular influence of the day. So we can choose to reject compassion or (coughs) we can accept compassion and be welcomed into a relationship with our Lord and believe in him and be loyal to him. It's our responsibility to reject or accept. But can I just warn you, as Jesus warned, if you don't believe, if you side with his enemies, then that something worse will happen to you.
You'll have to face God on judgment day and you'll be held responsible for your sin. And that's something worse that Jesus warned this man of uh, will come upon you being hellfire. However, Jesus extends compassion. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you repent and believe, then your sins have been placed on Him and God no longer sees you guilty of your sins, but they have been paid for. Let's just close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your compassion, your grace that you saw. Well, Lord, that you planned from before the foundation of the world to save sinners like us. We thank you, Lord, that you died in our place. Lord, you freely gave up your life to redeem us, to save us. And so we thank you for that. I pray, Lord, for all of us here, Father. You see the hearts of the men here. And I pray, Father, if there are these, those here who are rejecting you and denying you, Father, that you would draw them to yourself and they would be brought into relationship with you and be saved from the worst thing that is to come and your wrath and your punishment in hell. I thank you, Lord, for the sober message this morning. I, I thank you, God, for your word. I pray that you'd be with us as we now fellowship with one another. Help us, Lord, in everything that we do. Do it to the glory of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.